Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode three, I open a subspace channel to Madison, Wisconsin, where my friend Erica Carlson has just finished her first year of her PhD program in astronomy. I met Erica two years ago, shortly after she finished her physics degree at Pomona College. At that time, she was working at the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena. Erica, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Mike. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. I'm doing well. Yeah, unfortunately, my co-host Elise is on an away mission. Had oh, okay. to had to fly away via shuttlecraft. You know, I, I said that I'd beam her there, but after I beamed her that first time, she got a little bit scared of, of transporters. So you yeah, know, I it's heard she didn't like that. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, transporters sort of kill you. Uh, we decided, <laughs> um, and that wasn't a good thing. So. Yeah. Uh, shuttlecraft it is. It's slower, but perhaps safer. More leisurely. Yeah. You know something about co-hosting things with me because you were the co-host of Hailing Frequencies, which was a video series that we did as, as promotional material for a musical called Boldly Go. That was certainly an extremely rewarding and fun and completely new experience for me. Boldly Go was a musical, a Star Trek parody musical that Caltech put on in uh, February uh, and March of, of 2016. For me, it was it was something very magical and very unexpected. See, I'd, I'd loved Star Trek for such a long time before that, but I had no idea that I would ever do something related to musical theater. And then all of a sudden, Caltech was like, we're doing a musical production about Star Trek. <laughs> And I just had to jump in. But for you, I think you had a slightly different background and approach to Boldly Go. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Yeah, so I think you just said Boldly Go is kind of a way that Star Trek got you into musical theater. For me, it was kind of almost the opposite. I got into Star Trek through Boldly Go because of my interest in musical theater. I just graduated from college and was living and working in Pasadena and happened to see on Caltech's campus a flyer advertising open auditions for a Star Trek musical. And um, I'd always wanted to be in a musical. I loved musical theater. I'd been singing in choirs and stuff since I was pretty young. Um, so yeah, I heard about this Star Trek musical that was happening and having open auditions. And it was just so delightfully nerdy that I just had to go out for it. So Boldly Go was both your first experience in a musical and your first exposure to Star Trek. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was almost my first exposure to Star Trek. Okay, what was, um, what was your first exposure to Star Trek then? <laughs> so I would say my first exposure to Star Trek was actually because of my high school physics teacher. Okay. Um, so my high school physics teacher, Mr. Shuffler, um, he liked to show us in class clips from movies and TV shows, and we would talk about the physics of them or sometimes do physics problems uh, based on them. Clips from, I think, Superman and James Bond. But that was actually the first time I also saw any Star Trek, an episode of Star Trek, the original series called The Doomsday Machine. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it was great. So that was actually, I think, the first time I ever remember seeing any Star Trek. But yeah, got that first introduction. And then being in Boldly Go, reading all about Star Trek from Memory Alpha, the wiki, and uh, starting to watch episodes then. And that's kind of how I got to be a Star Trek fan. That's awesome. Yeah, I guess if, if I had a high school Star Trek memory, it was definitely, well, I have a couple. Uh, I'll just share one here today. 
also in high school physics, you know, took AP physics, right? And so uh, mm -hmm. the AP exam is in like the middle of May. And then you have like a couple of weeks up to a month after the exam before school actually ends in, in, right. in like June. And so uh, what, what do you do after you've taken the AP exam? Well, you do some kind of fun physics project. And, and I decided that my AP physics project would be to uh, give a presentation on the physics of Star Trek. And there was this really nice <laughs> book written by Professor Lawrence Krauss. I read his book. I threw in some of my own fun physics facts, uh, examples from Star Trek, mm -hmm. and I, I did a presentation called The Physics of Star Trek. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. All right, so you were introduced to Star Trek in high school. You participated in this amazing Star Trek musical that we did at Caltech last year. Uh, from from those experiences, from what you've been able to glean from the vast Star Trek fandom, what is something that you really admire or really love about Star Trek? For me, one thing I really love about Star Trek is, how do I word this? Okay, kind of these multiple layers of exploration that are going on. So, of course, there's the obvious, like, exploration of space, this cool, really cool outer space setting. But then I also really love the exploration of society, exploration of different kinds of societies, different kinds of potential civilizations on various planets, you know, various peoples, and explorations of human nature, what it means to be human is the theme in a lot of the episodes. So for me, I really love this combination of a oh, really cool science-y like space setting with this exploration of human nature, human society, different kinds of societies. And I think that's really, really interesting and really fun. Also, the cool sound effects. I love the sound effects. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> sound effects are Can't really get enough awesome. of those sound effects. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite sound effect? Oh, man. Um, I like the, what's the one? So, like, Captain, we need you on the bridge. Like, the one that goes, oh, I don't want to do it. It's like a whistle. Calling people. It's like a like whistle the, where they they press yeah. a button and they call people. Yes. Yeah. Wee. Wee. Yeah. Wee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're all very excited for Star Trek Discovery, yes. which is the new series coming out. We have a release date now, September twenty fourth. Yeah, I saw that. It's going to be a blast. I don't know what you're going to do over in Madison, Wisconsin, but I know I'm going to have a big party here at Caltech. <laughs> so, so far, we actually don't have a lot of, you know, information about this new series. They're keeping it pretty tight under wraps. We have a trailer, and the trailer shows what appears to be a binary star system forming. For those of you who have seen the trailer, our lead character, Michael Burnham's um, is in space staring at the, these two protoplanetary disks. And I know that Erica mm -hmm. is an expert on binary and trinary star systems, multiple star systems. So I, I thought we'd have her on board this episode to tell us a little bit more about them. Erica, how common are multiple star systems? Yeah, great question. Binary and multiple star systems are actually really common. We know today that approximately half of sun-like stars, so stars that are similar to the sun in terms of their mass and their surface temperature, approximately half of those are actually in multiple star systems. Wow. About half of them are single stars, like our own sun, just you know, alone by themselves. But the other half 
are in binary or triple or quadruple or even higher order uh, multiple star systems. That's crazy. So there are even quadruple star systems. Oh, yeah. And ones with five stars, six stars, seven stars. That's It that's, gets to be less common, but yeah, they yeah. exist. But that's amazing. You obviously build a star system from collapsing a cloud of gas and dust, right? It's something that we call a nebula. You know, when I picture it in my mind, because I'm biased and I live on Earth, which <laughs> orbits a single star, I see this cloud of dust collapsing into your protoplanetary disk. It's got one star and then it's got a bunch of planets. But what you're saying is that, you know, maybe these planets actually end up becoming stars in some cases. Is that how is that how multiple star systems form? Do we think that if you have enough mass, the conditions are just right in your collapsing ball of gas and dust, that maybe one thing becomes as massive as a star and another one that maybe would have become a planet if you didn't have as much mass or something. But in this case, there is enough mass. And so it becomes a star as well. Is that is that kind of the, the, <laughs> the idea? Yeah, well, I can tell you're coming at it from um, a planetary science perspective. Oh, yeah, I'm you're sorry. thinking about stars from the planet's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, how do, you, how do you as an astrophysicist think about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, generally, that's generally the right idea. We know that stars form from collapsing clouds of gas and dust. You know, oftentimes they'll just, you know, form one central protostar that's going to become its own star. It's going to become a, you know, full full-blown star at some point. But, you know, actually fairly frequently, those that collapsing gas cloud when it forms a disk actually fragments. We call it, we say it's fragmenting when it starts to form not just one kind of center of mass, but maybe two or more concentrated regions of mass that just keep growing and growing because mass attracts other mass, gravity. So yeah, oftentimes um, a disk of material will start forming multiple stars at once. I see. Okay, so there will be just one disk and two stars form within that disk. So so kind of a caveat to that. So okay. that's, that's what we think mostly happens. I actually went to talk to um, our local binary star formation expert. Um, he's a grad student in my research group who actually studies specifically formation of binary systems. I was really curious about something I noticed from the Star Trek Discovery trailer. So if you've seen the, the trailer or that image, you see that the two stars that seem to be forming are actually two separate disks. There are actually two separate disks of material, and they're actually at, at, at an angle to each other. Right. Um, I was actually really confused watching that trailer because I didn't understand really what was going on. Because my understanding of binary stars forming was they formed out of one disk, one disk, and they, you know, fragment and kind of form two stars. Turns out that's not always the case. We think the most likely scenario for a lot of binary stars forming is that there's one disk that forms multiple stars. But you can actually get multiple disks forming if in your collapsing gas cloud, instead of collapsing into one disk initially, it collapses into multiple disks to begin with, and then they can have all sorts of orientations and point in different directions, and they can be at angles to each other. And then each of those disks can start forming one star. I so see. that's actually possible. The thing is, though, for this scenario to happen, for the separate disks to form, they actually have to be fairly far apart from each other. So a lot of binary stars we see are much closer together and probably form out of one single disk. For this multiple disk scenario to happen, they probably have to be much farther apart. And so they're probably also loosely gravitationally bound, not as tightly bound as the closer ones would be. So the binary star systems that form out of a single disk, they would have planets that orbit around both stars, whereas the 
binary stars that form out of two separate disks may each individually have planets that orbit around a single star, and it's almost like having two solar systems kind of in a gravitational dance with each other. Is that, is that the correct interpretation of what the end state of such evolution would be? Sort of. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so the question of where planets form in a binary system or a multiple star system is actually really interesting. And it turns out, though, that planets are still a lot more likely, or at least we think, planets are a lot more likely to form still around a single star within a binary or multiple star system. Okay. So even from the scenario where stars, multiple stars are forming from one disk, as long as the stars are still somewhat far enough apart from each other, it's still a lot more likely for planets to form around the individual stars rather than to form around the entire binary. Okay. When you study these multiple systems, what is the research question that you're asking, and how do you go about figuring out the answer to that question? So there are a lot of actually really interesting research questions uh, that have to do with binary stars and multiple star systems. One thing that my research group studies is how the interaction between two stars in a binary system can actually really affect the evolution of that star. So when I say the evolution of the star, a star will go through different kind of stages of its lifetime based on what kind of nuclear fusion is powering it inside. And that has effects like it'll change the size of the star or the surface temperature and the color of the star. And we, so we call that stellar evolution. The star is evolving over time as it's changing its fuel source, the way that it's being powered. And when you have two stars in a binary system, sometimes one of the stars will donate mass to the other star or that star will take mass from the other star. So you can have some exchange of mass between the two stars, and that can really affect how the evolution of that star plays out. And we saw that, right, in the, in the trailer. It, it looks like there's a little strand of mass connecting the two stars, and it looks like the larger star is sort of siphoning or stealing some of the smaller star's mass. Yeah, that could be what's happening. It's not, yeah, it's not terribly clear because... Yeah, like I said, the way that this binary system maybe seems to be forming is that with the separate disks is that they have to be a certain distance apart from each other, mm -hmm. which so I'm kind of hesitant, hesitant to believe that there could be mass being transferred between those um, between the stars in that system. Right. But maybe it's possible. I don't know. In the trailer, they were saying or they were calling it an object of unknown origin or something like that. And they were trying to figure out what was going on is what it looked like. Yeah, well, I think they find something in the protoplanetary disk. That's okay. my that's my interpretation. They find something. I think I think they find. Oh, oh okay. yeah. Maybe uh, that's it. But okay. you know, maybe okay. So, but back to the science of these two disks. Right, maybe right. maybe they they formed individually far apart from each other and then somehow moved in close and they got close yeah, that enough then be. that the siphon could work. Yeah, but yeah, this general idea of yeah, so stars can kind of transfer mass to each other and that really affects their evolution. Mm -hmm. And so how do you how do you go about investigating these mass transfers and evolutionary changes of binary star systems? So my research group has been basically doing a survey of stars in star clusters in the Milky Way for a long time. So star clusters are groups of stars that all formed around the same around the same time. Okay. Um, and they're associated with each other, kind of gravitationally bound with each other. And we've been doing a survey observing lots and lots of individual stars within, you know, several of these star clusters in the Milky Way, including a lot of these are binary stars. And the way that we actually figure out that they're binary stars is by taking a spectrum of them. 
When I say we're taking a spectrum, I mean that we can actually resolve the light that we're getting from the star into multiple wavelengths. We can actually see which wavelengths of light are coming from that star. Mm -hmm. And we know where the peaks in those wavelengths, where a lot of that light should be coming based off of you know the composition, the chemical composition of the stars and, the, and their atmospheres. And when we see those peaks moving from where we expect them to be, that means that the star is in motion in some way, either moving away from us or towards us. So mm -hmm. we can actually identify certain stars that you can't resolve in the image. You can't resolve them in an image, but by taking the spectrum, you can actually see that there are probably two stars there and they are causing each other to move back and forth and that shifts their spectrum around. So we can actually detect and find binary stars that way. Wow. So you're basically a star hunter. You're looking for stars. <laughs> you're looking for hidden stars in a bright, unresolvable bright light. You know, you, yeah, we're basically doing what planet hunters, what exoplanet hunters are doing, except for stars, for other stars. I didn't realize that it was that hard to distinguish a binary star system from a single star. I guess it is because they're so far <laughs> away and they're very close to one another compared to the distance between us and that star system. So the only way to figure out that there are really two stars instead of one star making that bright light is to look at the, the signatures of the spectrum wobbling with time. Yeah, it's not the only way, actually, because um, you can also find binary star systems or multiple star systems with imaging techniques in some cases. So if a binary system, if the two stars are separated far enough and you have really high-resolution imaging capabilities, then in some cases you can actually resolve a companion to a star and find that it's a, a binary system as well. So that's actually another way you can find binary systems. So what are these advanced imaging techniques that you were talking about? So one way that you can actually get really high resolution imaging of a binary or multiple star system is called uh, speckle imaging. Um, and speckle imaging is a technique where you basically take lots and lots of really short, short in time pictures, images of whatever you're trying to image. And by taking a really short, a really quick image, you're freezing the turbulence of the atmosphere in time so that you're not giving the atmosphere time to mess up the light coming at you. And then you just take a lot of them so you can stack them on top of each other and actually collect enough of the light to resolve the stars. And that's actually one way that my collaborators and I are actually looking for potential companions to already known binary systems to try to find triple star systems. That's really cool. Well, speaking of triple star systems, did you know that the planet Vulcan from Star Trek is in a triple star system? Well, I actually kind of did because I looked into it before recording for this podcast. Nice. <laughs> Vulcan orbits some kind of sun-like star, not exactly like the sun. And maybe, Erica, you can tell us more about the stellar classifications, what the different types of stars are uh, mm -hmm. in just a little bit. But so uh, what, what they initially proposed for, for Vulcan's star was uh, a star called Epsilon Eridani. And so this, okay. is, this is a single star. It doesn't have any stellar companions in the constellation Eridanus. And, and it's, a, it's a K2 star. What does that mean, Erica? What is a K2 star? Uh, a star that we designate as a type K star is going to be uh, smaller in mass and redder in color than a star like our own sun. So we have a classification system for stars where the, the classes are defined by letters. And our sun is what we call a G type star or a G dwarf sometimes. Um, and a K type star is 
farther along in the low mass and cooler surface temperature redder color end of the spectrum mm -hmm. of star types. And I know it's very confusing and you just have to somehow memorize it that in order of decreasing temperature or lower mass, the stellar classification letters go O, B, A, F, mm -hmm. G, K, M, right? Exactly. Yep, exactly right. Why in the world did astronomers order it that way? That is actually a really great question and a really interesting um, little historical anecdote about stellar astronomy. So originally, the, the spectral classes that we call them, the spectral classifications for stars, O, B, A, F, G, K, M, originally they were defined by a group of early female astronomers at the Harvard, Harvard University Observatories. These are called the Harvard computers sometimes. So these were women who were employed to analyze spectra of stars that the male observers took at the telescope actually overnight. And then these women would actually analyze these spectra by day. Wait, wait, um, okay. First of all, first yeah. of all, it sounds like there needs to be another Hidden Figures movie about these women. Is that right? <laughs> the women are doing all the hard work. They're doing all the computations. And the men are just at the telescopes taking pictures. It is an example of... Yeah, some scientific history that's maybe not very well known, but there is a great book about this. So you mentioned Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures is a really excellent book, nonfiction book that the movie was based on. I just read it recently, and it was really great, really rich with history. And for those of you uh, listening who haven't seen or read Hidden Figures, it's about these African-American women who are behind mm -hmm. the calculations for the first human spaceflight in, in NASA history. Sounds like there were some additional hidden figures over at Harvard. And I don't really necessarily want to use the kind of co-opt the term hidden figures sure. for these women because these were all women were all white women, um, and the history of white female scientists and black female scientists is a very different one. So I don't want to kind of co-opt this term that was created for these black women sure. to talk about these white women. But yeah, there there is a it's a great historical story though. There were a lot of women who were employed at Harvard, the Harvard Observatory, to analyze spectra that were taken at the observatory there. One of these women who is credited with creating this classification scheme, her name is Annie Jump Cannon, which I think is just a great name, Annie Jump Cannon. The way she and the others originally created this classification system was they kind of broke up the spectra into how strongly one of the particular lines appeared, kind of. And it was a particular hydrogen, hydrogen line. So a line that you would see in stars that had a certain type of hydrogen. So it had to be like a certain like ionized energy level of hydrogen. So it was like a specific type of hydrogen line that you could see in stars. And some of them had really prominent, really strong lines that showed there must be a lot of this particular type of hydrogen. For others, they didn't, it, there wasn't very much of it, actually. And so what they did was they created this ordering, uh, this classification system based on how strong those lines were. And that was actually in alphabetical order. So they started with A and then B and so on. But then later on, when we started to understand stars a lot better, we understood what was causing those lines um, and how strong they appeared in the spectra. And it has to do with the temperatures of the stars. Once we were able to actually figure out what the temperatures of the stars were, it just made more sense for stellar astronomers to order the stars by temperature. So then when you actually order the stars by temperature, the order, the alphabetic order of the spectral classes gets all mixed around. And that's why you start with O and not A. And you have this kind of strange ordering of the classes. And Erica, I hear that there's a, a really fun kind of, uh, what, what do you call it? A mnemonic? Exactly. That. Uh, for <laughs> remembering this 
very odd sequence of letters. Do you have a favorite one? So again, the letters were O, B, A, F, G, K, M. So the one that it, the common one is O, B, a fine girl, kiss me. But something that I like to tell my students in the class that I was teeing for last semester, you can just as easily substitute guy for girl for the G, and that still works really well. So I told my students, and uh, depending on your, your kissing preferences, you can use whichever one you like to remember. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Beyond stars, it, you know, so M, M is the smallest, reddest, dimmest, coldest star there is. And if you shrink a ball of gas a little bit more, you get what's called a brown dwarf. Brown dwarfs are kind of stars that fail to fully ignite, but they also have letters classifying what they are. So brown dwarf letters uh, mm -hmm. go L, T, Y. And so if you append LTY to this crazy mnemonic, <laughs> the, way you, the way I like to uh, remember it is, oh, be a fine girl or guy, kiss me, mm -hmm. less tongue yo, LTY, oh less tongue gosh. yo, <laughs> which is pretty great. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, never, I, can, I never forget what the order of stars and brown dwarfs uh, just I because did not it's know that last part. too crazy, uh, too fun to remember. Okay, um, why did we do that? We, we did that because we were telling a story about what star Vulcan is actually in orbit of. That's right, okay, that's why we were so, talking about this. So originally it was proposed that Epsilon Eridani, this K star, about 10 and a half light years away, was the star that Vulcan was orbiting. But then Gene Roddenberry, actually, Gene Roddenberry is such a smart guy. The more I read about Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, the more I, I really admire the thought that he put into the show, the technical aspects, the scientific underpinnings of Star Trek. And he talked to a bunch of astrophysicists and found out that Epsilon Eridani was only 200 to about 800 million years old. Ah. And if the star is only that old, presumably any of the planets orbiting that star, which formed with the star, would also be that old. Now, 200 to 800 yeah. million years old sounds like a really long time, but actually <laughs> it's pretty short, right? That's a pretty young yeah. star. The Earth and our sun, we're four and a half billion years old, all right? Not yep. million years, billion years. And so uh, they found another star, 40 Eridani A. 40 Eridani A has a 40 Eridani B and C with it. All right, so it's in a, it's part of a triple star system. Now, 40 Eridani, uh, the 40 Eridani system is 16 and a half light years away, and 40 Eridani A is another K star. 40 Eridani B is a white dwarf, and I think we don't have time to talk about what a white dwarf is here. Maybe we'll do uh, another ep episode later about what a white dwarf is, but it's a, it's so a very cool. fascinating kind of star. And then uh, 40 Eridani C is an M dwarf, so that really dim red star. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and this was favored by Gene Roddenberry because it was about the right distance from Earth to make transit from Earth to Vulcan really fast. Um, and it's also about 4 billion years old. So he said that it would have enough yeah. time to develop life and a civilization comparable to that of human civilization. Yeah, so that's really important for thinking about whether a civilization, whether life could evolve on a planet around a star. Is how old is that star system? How old is that system actually? Absolutely. You know, we've spoken for so long, Erica, and I, I feel like I feel like we're not going to get to the whole question about habitability of planets around binary star systems. But we can always bring you back at another time to cover that very important subject of 
can a planet around a binary or a triple star system support life? That's a huge question that I think we'll just have to have another episode and contact you via subspace again for. <laughs> Does that sound good? Sure. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. That concludes episode three of Strange New Worlds. I hope you've learned something new about the nature of stars, how astronomers find and classify them, and star systems with multiple stars. I'll leave you with this vision. Try to imagine an evening on Vulcan, where 40 Eridani A has just set, but 40 Eridani B and C rise like jewels to keep you company as you stargaze throughout the night. See you out there.